Well, we talked about continuing in Romans 9 today, and uh, I will not be doing that. I did was able to spend a good deal of time on it, but it, uh, I have several things I'm trying to figure out how to cite well and not make it a too large of a burden to go through. There are several texts, three of them in Genesis, two of them in Galatians, one of them in Malachi. And so trying to figure out how to present that in an orderly way, so forgive me, I'm not ready to proceed there. What I'd like to do today is to, seeing as we've, over the last uh, week, we had some engagement with the first, second, third, and fourth commandments. My intention today is to talk about the fifth commandment. Um, But I want to, having had so much discussion about the law, be able to put before you, before discussing that, a reminder about one of the basic principles for rightly dividing the word of truth. And so my request is that you open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 15. 1 Corinthians 15 is dominated by the discussion of the resurrection, the doctrine of the resurrection. And Paul has a, a famous line of argument in this where he has what's called a sorites, which is a collection of, of, of arguments where basically you have a premise, another premise, and then a conclusion, and that's called a, a syllogism, okay, which is a logical argument. And then connecting that where you take the conclusion and making the conclusion into one of the premises in the next argument, that connecting of those arguments is called a sorites. Okay? So Paul has that. So there's this display of the logical thinking of God that's laid out for us in 1 Corinthians 15. I mention that only because I can't possibly reference 1 Corinthians 15 without explaining that. But when we get to the beginning of the chapter, there is this glorious, brief explanation of the gospel itself. And so, let's read the first 11 verses. It says, Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel. Now, what I'm trying to do here is to show you, again, a principle for rightly dividing the word of God. And that principle is to understand the distinction between law and gospel. Law is commanded, gospel is declared. Law is in the imperative form, gospel is indicative. Okay, so the idea that a command, do this, okay, that's law. The idea that here is a promise, so God says, I will do this, that's a promise, that's an indicative, it's indicating what's true. And so we have law and gospel as principles for the right dividing of the word. And so What we have here, moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel. Notice the Apostle Paul is telling us that the gospel is a thing that can be declared. Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel, which I preached to you, which also you received and in which you stand, by which also you are saved. We're saved by the gospel. We're saved by Christ. We're saved by the gospel. Believing the words of Christ. We just read in John 5. Believing the words of Christ, that's life. When the Lord Jesus Christ rebuked the Pharisees and said, you, you, think that you search the scriptures thinking that in them you have life, but they testify of me, he wasn't denying that the scriptures give life. He was saying, you're searching the scriptures and you're not understanding and you're not believing them. He said, if you believed Moses, you would believe me. And so, the gospel which is the word, it's the saving word, 
By the gospel we're saved. By Christ we are saved. If you hold fast that word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. Okay, so we're saved by the gospel if we believe the gospel, if we hold fast to the gospel. Unless we believed in vain, what does that mean? And that's why the second part of the chapter is so important. What the Apostle Paul is doing is he's saying, if you deny the resurrection, then you're denying the gospel ultimately. You're denying me as a preacher of the gospel. You are denying that my testimony was true. You're denying that Jesus actually had his sacrifice accepted. And so there is this setup where what he's doing is he's saying, if the doctrine that I'm preaching is false, then you're believing in vain. And so the gospel needs to be tested to see if it's coherent. Because if the gospel is that Jesus Christ was raised from the dead and Jesus Christ was not raised from the dead, then the gospel is false. Because it would be nonsensical. Because it would have assertions that contradict each other inside of it. So he lays out for us the positive doctrine. Verse 3. For I delivered to you... He's asserting there's a delivery of doctrine. And here's the doctrine. First of all, that which I also received. So he's, he's delivering the doctrine that he received. This is a doctrine that's given to him by the Lord Jesus Christ. That Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. Now this isn't just saying that Christ died for our sins as the Scriptures attest. It's saying that Christ died for our sins... And that means what the Scriptures explain. That means Christ died for our sins not in a mystical, ununderstandable way, but rather that Christ died for our sins in the sense that His death was a satisfaction, a debt payment, that He removes our guilt by having that payment satisfy the just demands of God's law. It means that His death is understood as a last act of obedience so he fulfills all righteousness obeying God the Father even to the point of death so we have the passive obedience of Christ where he dies receiving penalty in our place in our stead as a representative and the active obedience of Christ whereby he obeys every jot and tittle of the law perfectly in our place in our stead as our representative his death needs to be understood in that way that it was effective and particular it was for his sheep verse 4 and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day, according to the Scriptures. His burial and his resurrection are explained. His, his burial is prophesied that he would die, that he would be buried. That it's not just the appearance of a death. It's not just a, something that looks like a death. It is he actually died, he was buried, he was in the tomb, and he was resurrected. His resurrection displayed the acceptance of the sacrifice. There's a public vindicating of the sacrifice 
and of the obedience of Christ in his resurrection. That death could not hold him. That there was no claim for him to remain under the power of death. Now in that condition of having been raised, he was seen by Cephas, that is Peter, and by the twelve. After that, he was seen by over 500 brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain to the present, but some have fallen asleep. After that, he was seen by James, then by all the apostles, then last of all, he was seen by me also, as by one born out of due time. For I am the least of the apostles, who am not worthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God I am what I am, and His grace toward me was not in vain. But I labored more abundantly than they all. Yet not I, but the grace of God which was with me. Therefore, whether it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. Now everything there sounds pretty standard until you get to basically verse 8. Do you think verse 5 kind of makes sense? Maybe as a part of the gospel. A lot of people would maybe cut off the idea of, of the seeing of Christ in his resurrected state as a part of the gospel. But definitely by the time you get to 500. Most people think we're going on a bit long here. Let's probably cut it off at the previous verse. Then there's this thing about James and the other apostles, and then Paul was one born out of due time. Definitely done with the gospel now, right? And then he keeps going. He just keeps going. He says, he's the least of the apostles. And you go, okay, Paul, it's, is this still really a part of the gospel here? Are you still going on about this? Or where, where can we end the gospel part? He persecuted the church. The grace of, by the grace of God, he is what he is. Unless the grace of God was in vain towards him, which it's not. And he ends at verse 11. Therefore, whether it was I or they, so we preach and so you believed. There's no natural place to cut it off except for verse 11. The whole earlier part's the gospel. So how do we deal with that? What's that about? That last part is about the apostolic witness, the, the deposit left of the apostles. Okay, so, so all those verses, going from verse 5, up through verse 10, that's a sort of chain of custody of doctrine. And it's being laid out to say, here's the doctrine of the Lord Jesus Christ, and here are all these people who saw the resurrected state of Christ. And those 500 people, there's an overlap there with the 120 that are officers in the beginning of Acts who are waiting around and praying. And so what we have is, we have the death of Christ as explained by the Scriptures, the burial and resurrection of Christ as explained by the Scriptures, and we have the apostolic witness, the apostolic deposit. And so we have this doctrine, and it was received by Paul from Jesus, and Jesus preaches this same doctrine. Sorry, Paul preaches the same doctrine in Corinth and the other apostles preached that same doctrine. And so, whichever of them, the people in Corinth, received this doctrine from, whether it was I or they, so we preach and so you believed. Now the question is, these other people that are teaching in Corinth, who are teaching that there is no resurrection, 
they're teaching something else, so is that the gospel or not? And he shows how if their claims are true, then the gospel is false. So he's using the internal incoherence of the alternate position, the critical analysis, to test the coherence, to see if it logically fits with itself. And since it does not, it must be false. And so he is inviting a testing of the apostolic doctrine. There should be a searching of the scriptures and a considering of the coherence of the whole to see if these things are so, because the scripture cannot be broken. Now, the gospel is inclusive of the apostolic deposit because we are told in Daniel 9 that Christ will come and he will put an end to sacrifice. This will be the final sacrifice. There will be no more need of the types and shadows pointing forward because it will be accomplished. The substance will be here. And we're also told in that same passage that prophets and visions will stop. And so those go together. The concluding element of Scripture, that goes together. So we have this complete system. We have the whole revelation, the whole counsel of God given to us. We have the mind of Christ. We have a complete canon. And so it allows us to search the Scriptures and to compare, knowing that we can compare Scripture with Scripture and do systematic pulling together. We can do inductive studies where we take things and put them together because we have a complete set. And so, that being the case, this is a part of that doctrine. This is a part of the Gospel. The idea that there's an apostolic deposit that has been given to us and we are to believe the trustworthy word. Now that allows us, when we want to understand the will of the Lord, to look at what He has commanded and say we can get what God has told us to do by looking at these words that he has given to us. And we don't need to find something else. We don't need to wonder, but is there something I'm missing? Because we have the completed scripture. And so we go from the gospel, that good news of victory over the flesh, the world, and the devil by Christ, And we go to the law, which before we have the gospel, before we believe the gospel, the law shows us our need of the gospel. In our state of understanding and believing the gospel, the law provides for us a lamp unto our feet. And it restrains the evilness of other men so that we might be able to live quiet and peaceable lives so we can spread the knowledge of the truth so we can fill the earth with the knowledge of God as the waters cover the sea. So what I'd like to go to now, in light of this basic division of the word between law and gospel, the indicative and the imperative, indicative being gospel, imperative being law, I'd like to go to the fifth commandment. We looked at the first table, the love of God. So I'd like to consider now the fifth commandment as being the first part of how do we love our neighbor. So, in the larger catechism, question 123 says, what is, which is the fifth commandment? So, while you turn there, I'm going to read the reminder of, of the second table, which is question 122, which is, what is the sum of the six commandments which contain our duty to man? The sum of the six commandments which contain our duty to man is to love our neighbor as ourselves 
and to do to others what we would have them do to us. Okay, so the love of neighbor and doing to them as we would have them do to us, that gets explained in the 5th through 10th commandments. So, which is the 5th commandment? Well, the 5th commandment is honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land which the Lord your God gives you. Now, this term, father and mother, right, this is used to refer to the category of superiors. And the superiors, we, we think about sort of natural superiority which would occur if somebody's older or more gifted. We think about the parent-child relationship and the way in which that is the most obvious role of authority of one person over another person. But beyond that, there is the reality that the family, the church, and the state are all covenantal institutions that God has created. So the family or household isn't just the parent and the child, but there's also the husband and authority over the wife. There's the authority of the husband and the wife as the master and mistress of the home, having authority over the children and over the property and over any servants that might be hired. And so you have this idea, the institution of the household, which is more extensive than we are used to thinking about it. In America, we've been taught to largely believe that businesses are kind of this other institution. God established the household, the church, the state, and the corporation. Covenantal institution. Definitely shouldn't have any of the elements of family there. Shouldn't think about that in any sort of way there. But businesses are an extension of the dominion mandate given by God to Adam. And Eve is given that. And they together are ruling. And they have property. And inheritance to children is something that God talks about a lot. And so the possession of property being thought about in terms of the household and the idea that God has commanded us to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and the fact that since the fall we die makes inheritance a really big deal. It's the means by which property is not destroyed and chaos does not enter the world. It's the means by which property lawfully and orderly passes from generation to generation. And the possession of capital and the passage of capital is extremely important to avoid starvation, frankly. Most of man spent his time grinding away the dirt, figuring out how by the sweat of his brow to get enough food to not die. The way in which this became a problem was increased by the fact that people in authority tend to want to extend their authority beyond what God has given. And so the result is that they tend to oppress. And there's much food hidden in the ground of the poor, but oppression prevents that fruit from coming forth. If you don't think you're going to keep your property, you don't do the work. You know, poor people are historically known for being particularly clever. This is because peasants historically have been oppressed and they have found ways of hiding things from oppressors. So if you go to some place where there's lots of oppression, you will find that people have very cleverly found ways of hiding stuff underground. The more oppressive the place, the further away those things are from their house. Because initially you hide things under your floors, and then people get smart to it, and they go, well, the house isn't that big. So we could just dig up the whole floor, and we'll probably find their stuff. Okay, we don't think about that. We do think about how we're overtaxed. 
right? But we, we don't think about, I need to hide my stuff in the floor, or I need to hide my stuff in the backyard, maybe a little bit of gold. And you think maybe, okay, maybe there's something I need to put somewhere as kind of an emergency reserve. But most of our stuff is not buried. And as a result, it's put into the system to make it so that wealth is generated more. Capital is deployed for that purpose. The fifth commandment is necessary for that. It is the household is ordered in such a way as to increase dominion. The church is supposed to provide a covering and to provide support for households. And the state is supposed to make it so that there is a way for honest labor to be rewarded and for the truth to be able to advance and not be suppressed. And so this ordering of things, the fifth commandment is talking about that. Superiors in age and gifts and those who are in authority in family, church, and commonwealth. Now, 125 asks, why are superiors styled father and mother? Well, because there's a general tendency when you're in authority to want to depersonalize and dehumanize people who are under your authority. I'll tell you why. It is really, really hard to rule people. It is. It's really hard to rule people. If you're in authority and you're nice to them, what happens? You know what happens. People take advantage of it. If you're in authority and you're mean, what happens? This guy's a jerk. He doesn't know what he's doing. If you're nice to them, he doesn't know what you're doing either. So that justifies taking advantage of the niceness, right? So this idea that the person in charge doesn't have any insight is a common way of trying to say, I get all the benefits of this guy's authority, but I don't have any duties. So then, what is the way we're supposed to do things? We're supposed to care. We're supposed to interact with people as people. We're supposed to care about their souls, care about their bodies, try to advance their station, seek to develop them, help them to be able to develop talents and be able to increase their dominion. That takes a lot of time. You have kids, you're supposed to do that with your kids. Pastor, you're supposed to do that with people in your church. Your magistrate, the goal is to figure out how to order things so as to make sure that all the land gets tilled, but you're not the one taking control of it. So that's theft. How do you encourage work, positive work? You're either not doing enough, or you're doing too much. When was the last time you had anybody in any level of authority over you that you just said, yeah, just right. You had the Goldilocks response to their exercise of authority. You thought, just right. Now, if you've exercised authority, and you examine yourself honestly, when was the last time that you were like, I got this, I'm doing it right, everything, everything just perfect, I'm moving along, doing the right things, Spending the right amount of time on the right things. Getting my checklist done every day. I can't remember the last time I got my checklist done. Maybe like the first, second, or third thing. Maybe. Maybe. Good day. Third thing. When you're in authority, you get interrupted. So, this idea of the exercise of authority, we tend to depersonalize so that we can get stuff done because it's hard. 
And we tend to depersonalize the people in authority over us because we don't like them and we don't like what they tell us to do. Now, if we have to think about them as mom and dad, if we have to think about them father and mother, that is a personalizing thing. The fifth commandment is designed to draw us in to care about authority in such a way that we think about them as persons. Superiors are styled father and mother, both to teach them in all their duties towards their inferiors like natural parents to express love and tenderness to them according to their several relations, and to work inferiors to a greater willingness and cheerfulness in performing their duties to their superiors as to their parents. Now, 126. What is the general scope of the fifth commandment? The general point of the fifth commandment is that we should perform our duties that we mutually owe in our several relations depending on our station, is inferiors, superiors, and equals. Okay, so what honor, then, do inferiors owe to their superiors? Now, we, thinking about servant leadership, probably immediately go, whoa, 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 you're doing it in the wrong order, Westminster Assembly. We should talk about superiors first and the duties that they owe because they have a higher responsibility. I'll tell you what, if you don't think the person's in authority over you, they can't lead. They can lead by example. They can try to you know, get qualified and have you say, yeah, I want to follow that guy. But until you acknowledge them as an authority, their leadership is only exemplary and it's not authority. So if there is an established authority in the household, the church, the state, what's the duty, what's the honor that inferiors owe to their superiors? The honor which, superior, which inferiors owe to their superiors is all due reverence in heart, word, and behavior. Right? So an honoring attitude inwardly, honoring words, and honoring behavior. We don't even know what that means. Like, honestly, in America, we don't even know what that means. It's weird to us when somebody stands up when somebody else enters the room. Okay? Let's think about the honoring behavior for a second. Okay? There's a... Footnote 3, Leviticus 19.32. You shall rise up before the hoary head, the gray head, and honor the face of the old man, and fear your God, I am the Lord. There's nothing, that's not ceremonial law, that's not case law, that's just the duty to honor people who are older by standing up. Now, it's, you know, you don't teach you how to do this. They could turn into a real hard thing. If you're in your house, your kids, every time you walk into a room, they're standing up again. You know, you just maybe the first time you get home. Grandparents walk in the room. They walk into the house the first time. Stand up to greet them. First Kings two nineteen. Bathsheba therefore went unto King Solomon to speak unto him for Adonijah. And the king rose up to meet her and bowed himself unto her and sat down on his throne and caused a seat to be set for the king's mother. And she sat on his right hand. King Solomon, when his mom came in the room, he stood up and he bowed. He didn't have to bow. The law of God didn't say he had to bow. He added honor. But he stood up because he had a duty to stand up when his mom came in the room. King Solomon. Think you're too old to stand up when your parents come into the room? 
King Solomon, however old he was, didn't think he was too old, and he didn't think he was too much of a king to stand up for his parents. Now, honoring speech is something that we are also particularly prone to feel odd about. Now, honoring speech, the second footnote here, has Proverbs 31, verse 28. This is talking about the woman of valor. It says, Her children arise and call her blessed. Her husband also, and he praises her. Now, the husband is in authority over her. He's praising her, and it's on his praise, and that's him cherishing his wife. The children rise up and they call her blessed. Their standing is an honoring of her station, like King Solomon honoring his, 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 mo- his mother. And then, the calling her blessed, that's the words. And so this statement of her blessedness, what are the ways? Right? Let, me, let me number the ways in which you are blessed, mother. Right? This is the way that we can speak in an honoring way of those over us. Now the attitude is not trying to find fault, trying to interpret in a way that is charitable um, when there's doubt, trying to give the benefit of the doubt. When you can't just overlook, you, you challenge, and that challenging, you're seeking to bring resolution. And so, this idea of the attitude of desiring to show honor would draw your attention to look for ways that you can speak honoring words and to give honoring behavior. Now, good rulers historically are rare, and in the providence of God in the future, I expect them to be more and more common because of the growth of the word in the world and the maturing of the church my expectation that they will become more common there are many particular prophecies to that effect but what we are called to do when we have them is to pray for them and to give thanks for them that's true of those in the household in the church and in the state we are to imitate the virtues and graces the talents, the gifts, and the beauty of form they carry out. Self-control is difficult. Figuring out how to deal with hard situations is difficult. Figuring out how to carry yourself is hard. People in leadership hopefully display those things, and those are graces that can be emulated, that can be copied, that can be imitated. Willing obedience to their lawful commands and counsels, due submission to their corrections. Okay, this idea that counsels and statements about how to do things is a sort of positive training. The First Timothy three, sorry, Second Timothy three sixteen talks about the Word of God, and hopefully you've got these four pieces memorized, right? But there's the idea that it's for, that the Word of God is profitable for doctrine, for rebuke or conviction to show what's wrong, for correction to positively show what's good, and then to train in righteousness. 
So the counseling and the correcting are a part of helping to put off and put on. And so if we just ignore the counsel and correction of superiors, then do we think they have insight? Do they think that they should continue to exercise in that role? If you think the person is unfit, you should seek by lawful means to remove them. We should also seek to benefit from those who are fit by seeking to understand and follow good counsel and corrections. That does not mean that there's an, an obligation of obedience in every institution to everybody who's over you in that institution in all things. But you do have a duty to listen and to consider what's said. Fidelity, defense, and maintenance of their persons and authority. So fidelity is faithfulness, defense, and maintenance of their persons and authority. Many times in the persecution of the church, what happens is a godly leader is persecuted by the state, and the congregation lets them go. The congregation lets that person be persecuted, lets their pastor get jailed, lets that happen. Athanasius was arrested in the middle of teaching his congregation. Roman soldiers walked in and arrested him. The only appropriate response was to resist. They're all there. The Covenanters, the Huguenots, the Dutch Calvinists, they learned the lesson. They started, when the persecution started, they started meeting. They brought swords and aquabuses. They started to set guards around them. Some churches today have security teams because of the fact that there have been shootings that have occurred. Those things will serve them well if persecution increases. It is the duty of people under authority to be faithful to, to defend, and to maintain the persons in authority of the persons over them. Maintenance includes the idea of, you know, we pay our taxes to maintain the station of people in the state. We pay tithes to support the church. We work to maintain the household, providing chores and contributing to the household economy. That's the maintenance. According to their several ranks and nature of their places. So you do what's appropriate for them and their place. But the idea of defense. It is my duty to care for this church and to do it at harm and risk to myself. And it's your duty to stand by me if that happens. It's not that off the wall to think now that I can be charged with a hate crime for teaching plainly what the Bible says about many sexual perversions. So if that happens, will you stand beside me? Bearing with each other's but their infirmities and covering them in love. It doesn't mean never challenging anything. But my foibles, anybody in authority's foibles, they are serious. And the question is, how do you deal with that in such a way as to help them to grow, but bearing with some infirmity and trying to deal with that in an orderly way, covering in love rather than exposing? If I commit a crime, 
If I do something that disqualifies me from office, it's your job to uncover it. Biblical crime. We were just talking about, for example, the idea talking about sexual perversion as perversion. That could be a hate crime in the not-too-distant future. And if it is, you report me on that. That's a sin against God, and that will be on your head. But things that the Bible condemns, there are things that would disqualify me from office. There are things that justify divorces. There are things that, dis- that disqualify magistrates from office. You don't cover those. Those have to be dealt with. Talking about minor and personal offenses. That's so they may be an honor to them and to their government. Now, behaving in such a way as to bring honor to the people in authority. Children, you represent your parents. When you behave in an honorable way, it brings honor to your parents. Your parents bring honor to you. The glory of sons is their father's. A church is largely judged by how its members behave. A state is judged by the culture of its people. We should behave in such a way as to bring honor to those that are over us in authority because we reflect upon them. As Christians, being under the banner of Christ, the way we behave brings honor or shame to the Lord Jesus Christ. What are the sins of inferiors against their superiors? The sins of inferiors against their superiors are all neglect of the duties required toward them. Right, So neglecting to do the positive things that we just went through. Envying at, contempt of, and rebellion against their persons and places and their lawful counsels, commands, and corrections. Okay, so envying at authority, right? We, we often don't want an authority to be over us. We often don't want the authority to be exercised. We often wish we were the ones in the place. Contempt of, right? Hating it. Rejecting that authority. Rebelling against it. Overthrowing it. Uh, there are times to resist. But we are talking very specifically about lawful commands, counsels, and corrections. If a counsel is unlawful, no duty to obey it. You ought not to obey it. If a command is unlawful, no duty to obey it. You ought to disobey it. If a correction is unlawful, no duty to listen. Duty to not listen, to not obey. But again, as Americans... We have a tendency to envy at, have contempt of, and to rebel against lawful counsels, commands, and corrections. Now, some of the ways this can become extreme is when you curse or mock valid officers or lawful actions. Cursing a person in authority is an act of treason. In the Old Testament, it had the death penalty attached to it. We don't think it's that big of a deal. And that doesn't say something 
about the scriptures. That's just something about you. That's just something about me. Do we think cursing lawful authority is that wicked? Refractory and scandalous carriages proves a shame and dishonor to them and their government. Right? As Christians, when we behave in a shameful way, in a dishonorable way, we bring dishonor upon the Lord Jesus Christ. Those Christians, such hypocrites. They're so self-righteous. They think all this stuff, and look, look at them. And that happens in families, in churches, in commonwealths. Look what China does to America now in response to any sort of discussion about rights. Right? You talk about, you know, you have a concentration camp, and they go, well, look at you. You have, system, you have systemic racism. You see that thrown back at the American ambassador when the Chinese were meeting with him? This idea that, that there's this charges that come back that undermine authority, that undermine honor. We have a duty to honor lawful authority in the household, the church, and the state. And we ought not to give to support. So we ought not to give support to usurpers. When we do that, what we are doing is eliminating the distinction between honorable and dishonorable leaders. And so what we have to do is to very clearly recognize the difference between valid authority and invalid authority. And we have to very carefully honor valid authority and very carefully not honor invalid authority. So we get to superiors, 129, what is, what is required of superiors towards their inferiors? And when you see this, it makes clear why that level of honor is necessary. The fifth commandment is the commandment that orders our lives and interaction with each other. We don't think about the law enough, but we also don't think about the fifth commandment enough. The fifth commandment is the one that, that orders our interactions with each other in a way more than any, any any other command. The larger catechism is the most about it for that reason. So what's required of superiors towards their inferiors? It's required of superiors according to that power they receive from God and that relation wherein they stand to love, pray for, and bless their inferiors. Right? To love their inferiors, to seek their good, which means they're going to use their power to seek the good of the people under their authority. To pray for them and to bless their inferiors. Right? Praying for them, thinking about them, trying to call down the blessing of God on them. And then their actions are supposed to line up, right? Not just to be like in James, that guy that's condemned that says, you know, be warmed and filled, but then sends them on their way naked and hungry. Right? So, okay, so you're seeking the good of your people under your authority, right? Do you have any children? You have people under your authority. Any sort of management role at work, you people under your authority. Church office, state office, obviously people under your authority. And if you don't have anyone under your authority, you need to govern yourself very well, and authority flows to those who take responsibility. But authority is about being able to do a good work. It's about being able to serve. And so when you're in authority, it's your duty to instruct counsel and admonish people under your authority. So you need to teach. It, it, is, it is 
difficult to teach. It is difficult to teach well. It is difficult to speak into people's lives. It's difficult in a work context to do that. We're commanded to disciple all over the place. We're supposed to know the word of God so well that we can have the word of God coming out and be able to apply to those particular situations. And so we need to be able to think systematically and to be able to apply things to the conditions that come across our way. Because when you're in authority, you have to apply the truth to things that come up when they come up. So you instruct, you counsel, you admonish. The admonishing part, being able to rebuke without being overly harsh is difficult. One of the ways that you admonish people and you get better at it when you're really bad at it is you kind of overcompensate by being harsh. Because it's so much easier to just kind of throttle it and kind of push through your own difficulties. And so you think about people you know, people you can pretty easily categorize most people into either being pushovers or into being people who are overly harsh. And so how many people do you know where you go, ah, there is a person with moderation and equity. They handle themselves with discretion and the words are apples of gold in settings of silver. It's a rare breed. It's a rare sort. When was the last time you got rebuked and you went, that was just right. Nailed it. My soul hurts. I will correct myself. I lament in dust and ashes. You have shut my mouth. So, it's a hard thing to admonish properly. And we can't fall to the left or to the right. We can't over-admonish and we can't under-admonish. We just have to seek to grow in wisdom and seek to admonish properly. Now, in addition to this, your facial expressions as a person in authority have more power than you think. And what you countenance positively, right, if mama ain't happy, nobody happy. Right? If your wife is not smiling, trying to figure that out. You try to figure out countenance. If you are unhappy and you're in authority, that is noticed. Countenancing, commending, and rewarding such as do well, discountenancing, reproving, and chastising such as do ill. Just the outward countenance is powerful. What you praise and what you condemn, what you reward and what you chastise. And the funny thing is, you think rewarding and chastising are going to be the powerful things, because they're the extremes, right? And what do you reward? How many things do you reward? And then the chastising, you know, how many things do you actually punish? But the countenancing and the commending happens so much more and the discountenancing and the reproving happens so much more that those are the things that really shape and so you go well you know the details why are we, why are we nitpicking the details the details is where we live so when you're in authority when you have little ones 
Yeah, you got to spank sometimes. But what you say, how you say it, the facial expressions that you carry, the way that you're trying to make them feel in terms of a presence, that is the sort of constant. Protecting and providing for them all things necessary for soul and body and by grave, wise, holy, and exemplary carriage to procure glory to God, honor to themselves, and so to preserve that authority which God has put upon them. You know, a little bit of indiscretion can throw away a lot of power. Someone can have a long career of great things. They can throw away their power. It is important to maintain consistency, to have integrity in leadership. So the sins of superiors, the sins of superiors are, beside the neglect of all that positive stuff, an inordinate seeking of themselves. Seeking your self-interest is not sin. An inordinate or disorderly seeking of self is sin. Disorderly would be defined by the law of God. Are you doing something for your own pleasure before you are doing something that is a duty that you have? Now, there's always work to do. Now, you could work and never sleep your whole life and just assume you last 80 years somehow. You wouldn't run out of work to do. So does that mean you have to finish all your work before you can enjoy anything? No, there is an appropriate place to enjoy when you have successes, when you have harvests, when you bring the fruit in, you should enjoy it. But you don't party when the crops are rotting in the field. When it's harvest season, you harvest. A son who doesn't work in harvest brings shame. How much more true of fathers. The inordinate seeking of self, their own glory, ease, profit, or pleasure. You ought to seek your own honor. You ought to prefer ease rather than making things hard unnecessarily. Toil's curse. You ought to seek profit rather than loss. You ought to seek that. And you ought to seek pleasure rather than displeasure. But the inordinate doing of it, seeking those things as though they are the good, that's what's condemned. Using your authority to seek those things for you rather than using your authority for the good for the knowledge of God, for the good of the people under your authority. So it's understanding how to do those things in a way that seeks the good of the people under your authority and the glory of God. And you've seen people who have honorably gained honor, ease, profit, and pleasure, and you've seen people who've done it in a dishonorable way. You might not be able to define precisely where the line was there. By study, you can. But it's it's something that we have, by extremes, we have seen places where we go, okay, there's an example of inordinate. And over here is an example that looks like ordinate seeking of those things. Now, the seventh commandment does a really great job of laying out for us the proper ple- seeking of pleasure. The eighth commandment lays out for us how to seek our profit. The fourth commandment lays out our ease. And the fifth commandment teaches us how to rightfully seek for our honor. By seeking to do a good job in your place of authority and by seeking to do a good job in the place under authority, that brings honor to yourself. That's the proper way of seeking your own glory. 
It's a sin to command things that are unlawful. It's a sin to command things that the inferior doesn't have the power or authority to perform. To counsel or encourage or favor something that's evil. To dissuade, discourage, or discountenance something that's good. How many good works have been stopped by the tepid response of a leader? How many good works have been stopped by the tepid response of a leader? Correcting unduly. You can crush the spirits of people under your authority by overcorrecting. Correcting wrongly. Carelessly exposing or leaving to wrong temptation or danger someone who's under authority. We live in a time that has so many moral dangers. Earlier times had more physical dangers. Right, the ordering of things physically has reduced some of the exposure to physical danger that exists because of the wealth that we have built up. We've been able to deal with risks that otherwise we might not consider. Right, the more wealth that's built up, the more problems you can solve. Right, you have lots and lots of wealth. You start to care about things like sidewalks. Poor countries don't have sidewalks. Poor countries are thinking this place is rocking when you have Asphalt. We solve problems based upon the amount of wealth and time that we have. And so we have to think about what is careless exposing, what is leaving to wrong, what is leaving to temptation and danger in a way thinking about the larger, more common, worse versions of those things to the smaller ones. And based upon the level of wealth and resources you have what is careless and what is leaving to wrong or temptation and danger that's going to be based upon the set of resources available and so you know, leaving your kids with a TV that's not controlled would be a careless exposing our culture has so much filth on television now Think about there are many cultural things. Public schools, television, or radios, the magazines that are available in a store, frankly. You just leave your kid at Walmart next to the cash register. <laughs> you can find out all sorts of awful things. Provoking those under authority to wrath or any way dishonoring themselves or lessening their authority by an unjust, indiscreet, rigorous, or remiss behavior. So in authority, your duty is to be just, to handle things with discretion, to not be overly rigid, but to be careful also in not being overly rigid to become remiss or neglectful of the duties. And so we put those things together and being in authority is a serious matter of great weight and it's very difficult. So when you have someone in authority in your household, in your church, in your state who is a good and godly leader 
that, seeing the fullness of those duties, would hopefully encourage you to cover their failings in love and to cover their infirmities in love and to seek to help them to do more in their service. And at the same time, seeing what ought to be done, I hope will make you not quick to hold on to illegitimate leaders and to carefully test the qualification. And so you think about the Bible teaches about qualification for magistrates, qualification for elders and deacons. And so we should study those things and have them in our minds in such a way that we can tell the difference. So now lastly, as equals, equals are to regard the dignity and worth of each other, giving honor to go one before another. This is 131. And rejoicing in each other's gifts and advancement is their own. So often when equals rise above other equals, there is this tendency to want to cut down. And so, regarding the dignity and worth of each other and giving honor to one before another helps us so that when one of the others that is an equal makes advancement and is no longer an equal but a superior, we can rejoice with them. And if they fall and drop from a station of equality into a lower position, that we can weep with them as we care about their losses. The sins of equals are the neglect of duties required, the undervaluing of worth, envying the gifts, grieving at the advancement or prosperity one of another, and usurping preeminence one over another. When we talk about the idea that authority flows to those who take responsibility, I don't mean authority flows to those who usurp the station of other people. What I mean is that if you take responsibility for stuff that's yours, and if there's a hole in the wall, you stand in the gap, that's what taking responsibility looks like. So we look at all that. There's very little said about equals because equals don't govern each other. You respect each other's boundaries. You treat each other honorably. But we treat everybody like they're equals. As Americans, we treat everybody like they're equals. And because we treat everybody like they're equals, we are able to diminish our duties to each other. It's a smaller list. We all know that. We all know there's less duties to equals. And so that's what we do. So the law of God helps us to understand station. And then when we realize this and we distinguish between persons and treat them according to the station that we have toward them in a way that gives honor properly and serves properly, that is the way that differentiates us from other people, brings honor to yourself, and brings honor to God. The using of honoring words the using of honoring action and treating lawful authority with honor. Those in authority taking great care and pains in the use of their authority and equals being careful to guard borders to not usurp and to be careful to greet in. Those things distinguish us from the world in a powerful way. And there's a blessing attached to it. Your days will be long 
upon the land which the Lord your God gives you. This is an express promise of life and prosperity as far as it shall serve for God's glory and your own honor, your own good, to all such as keep this commandment. We will never perfectly keep this commandment until we have passed into glory. And that's why I started with the gospel. Because to rightly divide the word, you need to understand the difference between law and gospel. We are counted as perfectly keeping this law in Christ. The promise of long life is given to us in Christ. We have everlasting life. The knowledge of God is everlasting life. And in the possession of that, we have the blessing of this commandment. But there is also a general way, a proverbial way, in which, in this life, long and prosperous life is the tendency for properly dealing with people according to their station. And so, you can expect not only the absolute way of the promise that we have in Christ, but by degrees, as a general tendency, that is the blessing that you can possess in this life in applying the fifth commandment. Comments, questions, objections from the voting members and those with speaking rights. Uh, Let's pray. Father, I ask that you would bless the preaching of your word. We ask that you would help us to think about the fifth commandment, how to apply it to our lives. You would help us to be careful in honoring lawful authority and careful in the exercise of lawful authority. That you would bless us, give us long life and prosper us so that we can use these things to your glory. We ask that you would help us to not idolize long life and health and not idolize wealth, but that we would rather see them as instrumental goods that can be used for your glory. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen.